All right, if you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's, you're going to be on page 11, Genesis chapter 17. Uh, by way of review, over the, the last four chapters, that's 12, 13, 14, 15, I guess five chapters, we have seen God at work in Abram's life. From calling him out of Ur, uh, and then, as we looked at in chapter uh, 15, making whoa. Check, check. I'm on here. Yep. There we go. All right. Good. And everyone else is awake. This is great. <laughs> Periodically, Scott, we'll work, we'll work on that. <clears throat> so he called him out of Ur, and then in chapter 15, he made a covenant with him in Canaan. I feel quiet. Can you hear me? Okay. If you can hear me, then I'm good. All right. Uh, the repeated pattern we saw from chapter 12 on was trial and triumph. After a triumph came a trial. This was a, a repetition in Abram's life. We see it again and again. And we recognized in the Bible that that's not exclusive to Abram. Uh, we, we see that with, with, with other people in the Bible too. And we know it's true because that's our life experience. After a triumph, there, there frequently is a trial. And we may not love that. Uh, of course, uh, no, no one would, would want those things. But, but this is God's sanctifying work in our lives. Uh, this is, in fact, how God sanctifies us. Trials are meant to test us in order that we may grow. James, in the New Testament, says it this way in chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, perfect and complete means spiritual maturity, which does not come without growth, and growth does not come without trials. So, so though no one runs around looking for trials, what we can know is that without them, we will not grow. They are required. Only faith that is tested by God can be trusted. And so God tests us as he tested Abram. And now we come to chapter 17, we see here that the story is set 13 years after the end of chapter 16. So we have a gap of years between the end of 16 and the beginning of 17, as it tells us in chapter 16, verse 16, that Abram was 86 years old, and now 17, verse 1, Abram is 99 years old. In chapter 17, 16, excuse me, <clears throat> we'll remember the foolish plan of Abram's wife to give to him her female servant, Hagar, in order to try to shortcut God's promise to obtain a child. This was not God's plan. It was not done God's way. And it did not yield God's result. Rather, 
rather than helping God along, so to speak, their actions only complicated matters more and more. The child from this union of Abram and Hagar was Ishmael. As we come to chapter 17, Ishmael is now 13 years old. He, he is a stone's throw from becoming a man. And still no promised son of Abram and Sarai. At this point, God appears to Abram for the sixth time. Look at verses one and two again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. Uh, this appearance of the Lord to Abram was again a, a visual, visual, visual manifestation. Uh, this is the, the fifth time in, in this short history of Abram's life that the God has appeared to him for the purpose of confirming the covenant that he had given to him already. This is the same covenant when he talks about in verse 2, my covenant. It's the same covenant in chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 15. This is the Abrahamic covenant. For this covenantal occasion of him uh, confirming the, the covenant once again here in chapter 17, we can note an emphasis on three special names. Starting with the Lord, we see it in verse Verse one, as the Lord says, I am God Almighty. God Almighty, that is the word El Shaddai. God Almighty, it means all sufficient. It speaks to God's power and God's sovereignty. We actually see it throughout the book of Genesis in chapter 28 and chapter 35, chapter 48 and chapter 49, as well as in Exodus chapter six. And it comes to Abram at, a, at a, an appointed time for him to use this name. He uses his name on purpose. And at this special time, at a time where Abram and, and Sarai could not fulfill, could not fulfill the promise of God. God says to them, I am God Almighty. I am all sufficient. I am the one who has the power. I am the one who's sovereign over all things. I can do what you cannot do. In light of their inability, in light of Sarai's barrenness, God was able. Well, with this revelation comes responsibility. In the rest of verse one, it says, God says to, to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Uh, to walk before God meant to, to live in his presence or to live before his eyes. Koram uh, Deo, to live before God. To be blameless means to be without blame, without defect, upright, sincere, to be wholly devoted to God. And so we can see that because of who God is, God Almighty, Abram was to respond accordingly. 
And this isn't only true for Abram. We get to the New Testament, we read the words of Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of who God is and what he has done, because of the gospel, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable act of worship. In light of God, this is how you are to live. So after 23 years since God first made his promise in chapter 12, after more than one failure of faith, God was not done with Abram or his promises to him. Isn't that remarkable? Many of us might expect God to move on. Failure after failure after failure. And quite frankly, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we, if we were God, move on? And yet this is what we know of God. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. No, God would not move on. God would keep his promise. Well, Abram seems to have some sense of the gravity here as he responded in verse three. Then Abram fell on his face. We're going to see that same, uh, same reaction in verse 17. But, but God was calling to Abram, to a, he was calling him to a, a holy, devoted life. And any holy, devoted life to God begins with submission. Physically here, we see the act of submission. Whether we physically get into a position like this, our heart needs to be in this position of prostrate before God fell on his face. James chapter four verse says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Then verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Abram falling on his face here demonstrates just that. A reverence, a humility and the proper response to the presence of God. Well, the Lord continues, and God said to him, now verse four, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. We'll point out something a little bit later, but notice he says multitude of nations. I will make you into nations. That's plural. Just hold on to that until we get later on in the text. God is reconfirming his covenant to Abram that it's his covenant. In verses 2 through 21, we see this phrase, my covenant. We see it nine times. When God refers to the covenant, he refers to it as his covenant. We refer to it as the Abrahamic covenant because it was made to Abram and his descendants, but it really is God's covenant to Abram. Twelve times in this text we read, uh, in chapter 17, we read, I will. There is no secret here. God is telling Abram again, this is my covenant and I will do it. I will. Not I might. Not if, if I will. He is the giver. He is the originator. He is the promise maker and he is the promise keeper. 
Here we see in verse 5, uh, another name change. To further the co confirmation of the covenant, God gave to Abram a new name. They're the second special name here. Uh, the meaning, Abram, meant exalted father. Now here, Abraham meant father of a multitude. See that in verse 5. Father of a multitude. It's really only the inclusion of two letters, H and A. That's all it is, and yet it changes so much. For Abram would, from Abram would come a multitude of descendants, as well as nations, and also kings. From Abraham would come kings. Now this would be first, first fulfilled in King David, but ultimately it will be fulfilled in King Jesus in the New Testament, when from the line of Abraham comes the Messiah, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Now, name changes were common in Eastern countries, where, where names uh, or name changes indicated uh, a new status. So we, we see it here. We're going to see it with his wife. And then in chapter 32, we'll see it with a man named Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. But we know this too. We know this too, because in Christ, when we come to Christ, in Christ then we are a new creation and therefore have a new status. You have a new status. Christian, you are not what you once were. In fact, God does not see you as he once did. You have moved. Your status has been changed. You were once known to God as a sinner, now a saint. From guilty, now to innocent. You move from death to life. You move from an enemy of God to a friend of God. You moved from condemned to welcomed in by the Father. That's a change. Here, here in a, a snapshot, we see the, the meaning of these two names, Abram and, and Sarah, being changed. But we know the significance of that as well. And it's with that change, with that status, comes a new way of living. Well, this covenant was affirmed as an everlasting covenant in verses 7 and 8. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of the sojournings, of your sojournings, and the, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. What is God saying to Abram but that this covenant is not temporary? It's not for the, the length of Abram's life or even the next generation, but it is for his descendants. It is an enduring, everlasting covenant. God was committed to his promise. God was committed to his promise. When God makes a covenant, he keeps his covenants. We should also see here that this was not only about descendants and about land. In verse 7, the end of verse 7, it says, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then in verse 8, at the end, and I will be their God. The covenant was not only what God could give to them, 
but it was about himself. It was about he being their God. Once again, what we see here, though we are not in the Abrahamic covenant, is true in the new covenant. That God does give gifts. He promises gifts, some. But, but the most important thing is that God is our God. In the new covenant, we get God as our God. I'll say it one more time. We get God as our God. I'm not sure. Scott, right? We're on. Listen, there's a lot of false gods out there. There's a lot of gods that promise everything and, and give nothing. Our God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's our God, Christian. The God that kept his word to Abram keeps his word to you and me. Don't get lost on it. You've heard that God is your God. I understand that. I know this isn't a revelation this morning. But don't miss it. The same God is your God. The same God that's, that came to Abram and spoke to him is the same God who speaks to you through his word today. Same God. That's amazing. It should not be lost on any Christian. Well, as we move into the next verses, God introduces a sign of the covenant. And he introduces it not only as a sign, but as a command. Look at verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. And this is what it is. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh and everlasting covenants. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You'll see at the beginning of his words in verse 9, nine he says, As for you, to Abram, you and your offspring. In the New American Standard translation of the Bible, verse 4 says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. So what God does is he starts with saying, this is my covenant and I'm promising it to you. And then he moves to verses 9 through 14. It says, and as for you, this is what the, that means. You, you have a responsibility as well. Abraham and his descendants were given a duty, a responsibility concerning the covenants. Now, whereas it is true that the Abraham covenant is an unconditional covenant, we just saw that in the first verses, is my covenant. God is establishing it. God is doing it. God alone was the one who passed through the pieces of the animals in chapter 15, ratifying the covenant. 
And by his own words, the Lord says, this is my covenant. One writer says, however, his oath did not ensure that every physical descendant of Abram would participate in this blessing. Here in chapter 17, we see in verses 2 and 3, explain that individual members of Abram's line had to meet certain conditions to be true members of God's family. Each child of Abram had to walk before him and be blameless. Each child had to live before the face of God, trusting him in faith, obeying him, repenting when they had sinned, end quote. And we would see now into this section and be circumcised. We want to make sure, though, that we understand no one's obedience is required or was required for God to keep his word. That is not what God is saying here. He does not say, if you won't, then I won't. There is a responsibility to act accordingly, to respond to this covenant appropriately. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that. Verses 9 through 14 tell us that. Another writer says the Abrahamic covenant is, the form, is in the form of an unconditional contract with Abram and his divinely chosen descendants. Ultimately, it is guaranteed by the faithfulness of God alone. Nevertheless, it has, secondary conditional, it has a secondary conditional aspect. To enjoy the benefits of the covenant, Abram must obey God's commands, end quote. And so God gives to Abram and his descendants a sign of the covenant, and that is circumcision. I tried to have Pastor Chris preach this message, but it didn't work out. Circumcision. Circumcision means cutting around. It was, of course, the physical cutting of the male's foreskin. But here it is given spiritual significance. It wasn't only, it certainly was a physical act, of course, but it wasn't only that. It had spiritual significance. It wasn't a new practice. God it wasn't inventing something new. Circumcision didn't start with the Jews here in chapter 17. But it, it, but it, is, it has a new uh, spiritual significance as a religious rite for Abram and his house. It was to symbolize commitments. It was to consecrate oneself to God. It was a, a sign uh, of their devotion. It was a tangible reminder of this covenant. And it was a reminder that as, as Kent Hughes says, covenants are solemnized through blood. And this one would be as well. God was clear that every male in the house, born or bought, must be circumcised. And to remain uncircumcised, verse 14 tells us, means that they would be cut off from God's people in God's covenants. This was God's way. There was no room for, alt, alt, uh, for any alterations or customizations to the covenants. Uh, no, no preferences here. No, no, no Jew could say, well, could I do something a little bit different? Then circumcision, <laughs> I mean, can I have something else cut off? I mean, is, is there another option here? Is there something less painful? Abram's 99 years old. That's going to hurt. Uh, Ishmael's 13. The men of his house are grown. Eight-year-old eight children don't have memories of this thing, of course. But these are grown men, of course. But, but there is no altercation. There's no way to alter what God has said. There's no religious um, pluralism or personal expression granted here. There is one way. And God says, this is the sign. This is what you must do. 
That is still true today. As with this covenant, there's another covenant. And there's only one way. There's only one way. As God says, this is the way here in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the way. You and I don't get the luxury of negotiating with God on the ways into the covenants. We don't get to determine a different path to God. Jesus came and said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, some people think that that's very exclusive of Jesus. That's, that's very demeaning to other, other religions and other, other ideas. But Jesus was not coming to try to be exclusive. He was coming to tell the truth. And the truth is that Jesus is the only way. And so that means he is not one option among many. He is not one road among other roads. That's a lie. Those roads do not lead to God. And Jesus is coming to say, I am the way. You're looking for the way? I'm the way. This isn't to demean other people. It's to say, there is no other way. I'm here to tell you. There's people who've tried. Some of you might be trying another way. There's only one way. So instead of looking at Jesus as how dare you put all these other religions down, how about we say, thanks be to God that Jesus has come to do what no one else could do. It's the greatest news in the world. I am the way. No one else is coming. No one else is coming for you. No one else is coming to rescue you. But guess what? The rescue has already come. The rescue's already come. It's available today. If you would but repent and believe. Well, the Lord continues in verses 15 through 21 as Sarah's pregnancy was announced. Verse 15, and God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, <clears throat> you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give her to you, uh, give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings of people, peoples shall come from her. You see the plural again there. Another new name, another new name for this occasion. <clears throat> No longer Sarai, now Sarah. In order to indicate her new status, God changes her name to Sarah, meaning princess. Princess, from whom nations and kings would descend. We can see in these verses, as in verses one through eight, this repeated I will promise. God would keep his promise to Sarah. In response to God's promise to Sarah, Abram reacts. Look at verses 17 and 18. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, become a, uh, bear a child? Not an unreasonable response, right? <laughs> not, not, not incredible ideas here. Uh, pretty, um, pretty astute 
reasoning here by, by Abraham. The, the exception uh, of all the talking in chapter 21, excuse me, chapter 17 in the verse 21 chapters, and this is the only exception of, of talking is what Abraham says in 17 and 18. Everything else is God's words. God dominates this passage on saying what he's going to do. Here is just Abram's ver- verbal response to himself uh, of this joy or of this laughter and then of these, these questions. We, we might wonder though, is this laughter unbelief? Is this laughter joyful? Is it hopeful? What, what might he mean here? Well, the absence of any rebuke to Abram, which we'll see in a moment, the absence of it, uh, would, would lead us to believe that this is not a, an unbelief laughter, but, but a joy a hopeful laughter. Like, really? <laughs> from, from a guy that's 100 and a wife who's, who's 90? Like, really? This could really be? And though the laughter may not be doubts, he does express the reality that they're old, right? Uh, but again, we said this last week, that the point for their age was intentional. God was doing something. In Romans chapter 4 and in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that they were as good as dead meaning biologically, they were to the point where children weren't an option. And so in order for for God, for it to be clear that this is a miracle from God, God waited until they were unable, completely unable, and that's when God worked. It was a demonstration of the power of God. Well, Abraham was still processing it all, and he says in verse 18, now he says this to God. The question was to himself, now he says this to God. Oh, that Ishmael! might live before you. God just promised that Sarah's going to have a son. Sarah's going to bear a, a child to him. And he responds in verse 18, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Again, Abram looked at the situation rationally and, and biologically speaking and, and knew that this, this could not happen physically for them. And so he pled for Ishmael. Now, what, what, does, it, what does it mean here? There's different ideas about what Abraham might be expressing in verse 18. Uh, A generous interpretation would be that the father, Father Abraham, here is advocating for his son Ishmael. This is my son. I'm old. I can't have another kid. This kid's going to be 13. Can't it be him? Can't he be the the, the promise? There's a way of reading this that, that Abraham might still not have gotten it. But God made it abundantly clear in verse 19, of what Abram may have thought. Verse 19, God said, no. (laughs) No. Uh, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. No, it's not going to be Ishmael. It's not going to be Ishmael. Keep reading. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant, for his offspring after him. So it's as if God is saying, actually, no, Abram. No, Abraham. It's not, it's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. Isaac will be the son of promise. Isaac will be the one through whom the covenant continues. But then God does deal with Ishmael. Look at verse 20. And as for Ishmael, right? So we have four, as for me, in verse nine, as for you, Then as for Sarah, now verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold. So listen, I'm 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 not ignoring you, Abram. I heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. God's going to bless Ishmael. He shall be 
father of 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And he did. And I will establish, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Fast forward to chapter 18, verse 10. God would still bless Ishmael, but neither he nor his descendants would be the one through whom the covenant blessings would be received. That would be established through Isaac. Well, the following are the last words, verses 22 through 27, as God goes up from Abram. Uh, we find that the, those were the last words, excuse me, uh, stopping at verse 21, as God goes up from Abram. Look at verse 22. When he had finished, that's when God had finished talking to him. God went up from Abram. The appearance was over. God left. Now, what's Abram going to do? Right? Here, here's, here's, the, here's the crux. And God comes. He appears. A theophany. He is present with Abram. He gives to him this great confirmation. He announces to him uh, these name change, which is, means a new status, which something's going to change. He tells him she's going to have a son. His name is going to be Isaac. The promise is going to go through him. Everything is laid out. Even more clearly than chapters 12, 13, 15. It's all clear. But now the trial is on, isn't it? Right? Here it is. God's word has come. What will Abram do? What will Abraham do in verse 23? Follow along. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abram and his son, Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of the house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Abraham took God's word seriously. And that very day, can it be more clear? That very day he obeyed. There's no delay here. There's no delay in Abraham. In fact, delayed obedience is no obedience. Abraham obeyed right away. When God calls, we must obey right away. One writer says it this way, faith responds with immediacy and perseverance to the direct commands of God. James Montgomery Boyce says, if God tells you to do something, obey him at once, and you will find that God is adequate, more than adequate, end quote. Obey immediately. We cannot look at obedience to God's commands as too hard for us to do. Or as one pastor has recently said of those struggling with a particular sexual sin, that for some, celibacy was unsustainable. Excuse me? God's command... God's will, God's design is unsustainable? Can't do it. I'm going to just do my own thing. Woe to you 
Woe to any pastor or any Christian who ever stands in rebellion against God's word and claims that we, the created, know better than the creator. That we, the finite, understand the trials and the tribulations and the sufferings that we experience better than the eternal God. That we who are fallen and sinful are free to determine what commands of God are sustainable for us and which can be transgressed without consequence. No. No. You are not free to do anything of that nature. God has spoken. His word has said what it has said. And we must obey it. Period. We all have excuses. None of them matter. None of them matter. What God has said, we must do. Not tomorrow, today. J.C. Ryle says, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's day. Obey now. What did Abraham do? That very day, he obeyed. And I say to you, this very day, we must obey. God has spoken. It is not God's words that need to change, but it's our very hearts that need to be changed. Our hearts that are desperately wicked and cannot be trusted. Only the, the saving, sanctifying work of the Spirit gives us a new heart and new eyes to see God, to see his word as good, to see him as good, and to joyfully obey him. If God calls us to something, he will provide what we need in order to do it. What he calls us to, we must obey. Now, I will grant you that that may be easier to say and harder to live, but it does not change the truth. Sometimes we say that as though that's, an ex that's a get out of free jail. Free, well, that's easy for you to say. Okay, it might be easy to say. That doesn't matter if it's easy to say. Doesn't matter if it's hard to do. No one wants to be circumcised at 99 years old, and he did it. Why? Because God had commanded it. And God had said, This is the way, this is the sign. If you don't do it, you'll be cut off. Abraham heard the command, and he obeyed that very day. We ought to note, as Warren Wearsby writes, Circumcision was not the means of Abraham's salvation. We're not talking about salvation of being part of this covenant here. Abraham had already been justified in chapter 15, verse 6 before circumcision. So circumcision wasn't salvation. It, it was a mark of his separation as a man in covenant with God. Works never were meant to save. No work, no merit of our own could ever save us. A circumcision was a sign of being in covenant with God, in relationship with God, as a wedding ring is a, a sign of the covenants of one's marital union. Another writer says, physical circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. But true salvation comes from what Paul calls circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Circumcision of the heart changes our desires and affections and grows us more like Christ. It causes us to follow God's law and walk in his ways, end quote. 
And yet, what have religious people done with circumcision? In Jesus' day, the religious people, they, they, they added on to what God had said. They added on to the law. They added on as though these were all requirements for salvation. You must do, do, do in order to be saved. When, when the apostles came on the scene in, the chap, in chapter 15 of Acts, they're confronted with the, 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 the uh, early church who are still stuck in this same way of believing that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. This became a gospel issue and a, and a, and a church council was, was um, called for and the apostles had to go and, and mediate this and preside over this council to, to teach and to explain what? That salvation is not through works. Anything that adds to the work of Christ is not salvation. As important as physical circumcision was under the Abrahamic covenant, it was never done in order to save, but rather in obedience. In the church age, we are not under the Abrahamic covenant. We are under the new covenant. And circumcision is not the sign. It is not a requirement. Under the new covenant, baptism is a sign of our identification with and union with Christ. God certainly was and is all about transformation of the heart, not about the outward. A Christian is not saved from the outward in. He is saved inward out. Meaning, I don't do good works enough to be saved. No, my heart is converted, and because I'm converted, then good works. Good works do not save, but we are saved for good works. We're not saved by them, we are saved for them. Paul makes clear about circumcision in Galatians chapter 5, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. No works. Works are not going to get it done. So, so lest you hear this morning the, the obedience of Abram is, is him doing his work to appease God. No. That was joyful obedience to God Almighty. And our obedience today is to be just that, joyful obedience because of who God is, not to earn God's favor. In Christ, you've already received God's favor. Christian, there's no condemnation for you. You don't have to search for God's approval anymore. Some of us do so many things, we think God's going to love me more. God can't love you more. He can't. Why? Because he loves you like Jesus. So that's it. You don't have to search for God's approval. Now some people are like, "Woo, great. I don't have to do anything. That is not the point. The point is that because of such grace and such kindness and such love, what do I want to do? Serve him. Give him my life. Not in order to get from him. I already got him. And it was nothing of my own. And that kind of grace changes our lives. And though the new covenant is different than the Abrahamic covenant, they do share a commonality of God's sovereign act and man's responsibility. And this is super important here. James Montgomery Boyce again writes this, God justifies us by grace on the basis of the work of Christ. But 
since God never justifies without regeneration, new life, one, the one who is justified will, must, and shall respond in ways that are glorifying to God. So those who run around and say, I prayed a prayer when I was eight and haven't done jack since, do not understand what it means to come to Christ. Why? Because the one whom God justifies, he regenerates. And as he regenerates, the response is to live for the glory of God. That is the rightful response. Abraham was called to walk before God blameless and in obedience, and we are called to the same. We could go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, and all tell us just that, that God calls us to blamelessness. You can't be blameless on your own. You can't do this on your own, and neither could Abram. God had to come to Abram and say, I'm making a covenant with you, and I'm calling you to live this life before me, and God has come to us again, the person of the work of Jesus is as I have paid for your sin and I'm giving to you my spirit for those who will trust me. And in the empowerment of the spirit of the living God, we then can obey him and walk in faith. Like Abram, our obedience is a joyful response to God and his word. Our hope is not in our works, but in the one who worked on our behalf in whom we are made right with God. He is the one we trust in. He is the one who we build our life upon. And he is the one before whom we walk. May God find us faithful to him, both today and the day when we see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you did for Abram, how you called Abram, and what that means to us, and what that teaches us about who you are and how you interact with man. And you have called to us. And we hear the call from the, the very moment of Jesus' public ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And in repenting and believing the gospel, then we are to follow Jesus, to walk in his ways, to do what he did, to live how he said. Would you help us today? For those who have yet to repent today, I pray that they would hear Jesus' command. Yes, an invitation, but yes, a command to repent and believe and to know him as their savior. For those who have, Today, God, I pray that you would help us to live in this new covenant. Having come to Christ, now will we walk with Christ in obedience and faith. Would you help us today? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh God.